0: Welcome to Southern Lawyer, where we bring you real stories from real lawyers. Today we are talking to none other than the Randall Kessler. You've seen him on CNN, you've seen him on The Real Housewives, and today we are happy to have him join us on Southern Lawyer. So I am here with Randy Kessler, founder of Kessler and Solomon. Very well said. I said it correctly? You did. Okay, perfect. So, Randy, everyone knows who you are. We you know you're an attorney. So, I just want to talk to you today and find out first, how did, how did you decide to become an attorney?
1: So, when I was three years old, mm-hmm. and I promise I won't spend 50 years worth of explanation, my grandfather, was a cab driver at the Miami airport, told me I was going to be a lawyer, not a shyster, but a lawyer. Mm-hmm. He planted the seed. And like I said, that's why, but, you know, my life took a lot of different turns, and Love helping people, love doing stuff that, that makes people's lives a little better. Law school just seemed like the natural way to do that. That's what, um, you know, knowing our family had been to graduate school, and, uh, my dad might have been the first to graduate college. And I, after our undergrad, I, I just knew I wanted to be a lawyer and I wanted to be in court and I wanted to help people, and that was about as much as I knew. The rest of it just sort of felt like life sort of took me by the hand. The firms I worked for, I kept getting assigned to do the divorce work and the family law work, either because I was good at it or because nobody else wanted to do it. My ego says because I was good at it. Mm -hmm. Reality says because nobody else wanted to do it. And um, when I started my own practice, three years out of law school, I took everything that came in the door. The family law clients were more grateful, more appreciative. Seemed to be coming to me because I offered something that helped, and the other ones were coming to me because I was young and hungry and I could do it for cheap. So I started doing stuff that made me feel good, that I was helping people. And Back then, nobody really did just divorce work. It was sort of a new thing. So I guess timing was good for me, too.
0: That's interesting because my next question was going to be how you chose family law. So was it just happenstance?
1: I wanted to be in court. I wanted to get out of the office. I wanted to be in a field like that. I didn't want to just look at contracts morning, noon, and night. But really, when you open your own practice, you take whatever comes in, and family law is everywhere. Everyone knows somebody who's got a child support issue, or a custody issue, or a divorce issue, or a prenup issue. And I realized I couldn't do it all. I took my one worker's cop case, where there was no insurance, and I had to figure out how to win that case. I took my, you know, a couple DUI cases, some personal injury cases. And the ones that I really liked where there was a lot of interaction were divorce. You know, personal injury, client hires you, signs a contract, and they pretty much say, call me when you got a check for me. Mm-hmm. Same thing, criminal, just tell me how many years I'm going to spend in jail or, or if there's a plea on the table. But family law, people wanted to know day by day, when can they see their kids, how are they are going to survive? So I felt much more needed and, and that I had much more of an impact on my clients handling family law. So sort of evolved to do that within the first year or two.
0: Well, that's interesting because I hear a lot of attorneys say they don't want so much client interaction or they get annoyed when their clients call them all the time how do you feel about client interaction? I think those lawyers should not do family
1: law, there's a place and a time for everybody and if you're one of those lawyers then you shouldn't be a family lawyer and if you're a lawyer that likes client interaction then you should be a family lawyer, It just, you know a lot of people ask me and I've been asked this at seminars by young lawyers or or law students how do you turn it off at the end of the day how do you not take these cases home with you my reaction is always is you can't. If you want to practice law in an area where you don't take it home with you, then be a business lawyer or some kind of lawyer where you can confide it to 9 to 5 because this is not a 9 to 5 practice. And um, I don't mind. I charge enough money that if someone calls me 3 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday morning and I hear the phone, I'm probably going to answer because it's probably important enough to them if they're going to call me and pay that kind of money, they should be able to have me.
0: Okay, so talk about that. How do you go from taking everything that comes in the door to, I charge enough money that I'm taking your call at 3 o'clock in the morning?
1: It's hard. It's hard to say no. I think we were one of the first firms that uh, put our fees on our website. We were bucking the trends, and all the consultants said, don't do that, get clients in, do a free consultation, let them come in and and see you and meet you, and then they'll hire you. And I didn't think that was fair if we were going to charge a few hundred dollars an hour. So we were very upfront about our fees, they're listed on our website. The receptionist knows to mention that during the first call that we charge for the consultation. And that our retainers range from $5,000 to $25,000, and they could be more or less, but generally they're somewhere in there, so that the clients that can't afford that don't come in hoping that they can hire us. And On the other hand, it makes it easier for me when I'm in a consultation. If somebody has a big case and they're going to need to pay a $20,000 retainer, I know they've already heard that number before, and I know that they're expecting to have to pay a, a significant fee so it makes it easier to ask for money on the other hand we probably lose some business people probably think well they're charging that much just for the consultation I'm not going to hire them and we might lose some clients that could be good customers but I'd like to err on the side of everyone knowing up front that you know we charge by the hour and it's a hard concept for a lot of people you're charging me just to think about my case you're charging me just to talk to another lawyer or make a phone call yeah that's, you know that's all we have is our time
0: well, that's very true. And I do hear that now, even my own experience, when I was working with marketers and they were telling me to put free consultation, you know, on my advertising and I started getting all these random calls and I was like, No, take that off.
1: Right. I think a free consultation says I need the business and we're lucky enough that we don't need the business. I've also been of the opinion that it's not about how much money I can make. It's about how much time I can have to do what I need to do, which is a good job for my clients, spend time with my family and if you know, if I charge so much money that people aren't hiring me, then I'll have time and I'll be able to go use that time to do a better job for the clients that did pay us. Because if someone pays us a $20,000 retainer and I'm taking $500 retainers here and there, that's not fair to the person that came up with the money and really dedicated a a chunk of cash to purchase us or purchase our time and make sure that we're available for them. So it balances out. And uh, if someone doesn't hire us because we charge too much, then hopefully there'll be another client. But if not, at least I've got the time to figure out how do I either generate more business, do a good job for the clients I have, or worse comes to worse, I go home and spend time with my family, and that's not at all a bad thing.
0: Okay. Well, how do you balance that, taking calls at 3 o'clock in the morning and spending time with your family?
1: Surprisingly, it doesn't happen. It really doesn't happen very often. A client called me last night, which was Sunday night at about 10 o'clock, and I answered the phone. He said, I'm so glad you answered the phone. You know I wouldn't call unless it was important. And it was important, but it happens so rarely. I mean, clients seem to respect my time. it's not an emergency, then it can wait. Also, you know, I can check the messages. If I get a call late at night and I'm doing something, as soon as the message comes in and I have a chance, I'll look at it. And if it's something that needs to be responded to, I'll respond to it. I just don't know how someone can, like me, can charge over $600 an hour and say I'm not going to be available except for 9 to 5 Monday through Friday. It just doesn't feel right to me. If someone's willing to pay that kind of money, then I need to be available. And because it hasn't happened too often, I'm not afraid to give out my cell phone number to our clients and and take their calls. We also have a lot of staff, so a lot of times people are calling the junior lawyers, or the younger associates, or the partners, or the paralegals, and getting answers from them. So if they're calling me, they're really they're going to pay the highest rate in the firm. And I keep talking about money, but that that's a message to me that they think it's important enough to spend that kind of money on a phone call. How can I not at least listen? I just I don't understand how lawyers say I'm not going to. That's my time, my private time. There's there's time I got to spend with my family. There's time that I'm not going to take calls. But I'll find a way to get back to somebody or at least call a younger lawyer in my office and say, can you at least call this client back and get it set up for me to talk to them in a few hours.
0: Well, it's interesting because hearing you speak this way kind of is different from the Randy I know who's very generous with your time. How do you make that happen? I, I find that you're very generous with younger lawyers, with your advice and your time. You seem to be fairly accessible What's to a, the people you know.
1: For, Well, it's the same thing. I don't think there's any difference between what I was just saying because what I am saying is I am available. And, you know, the fact that the clients are paying me, I'm not thinking to myself, I'm going to answer the call because they're paying me. I'm thinking it must be important to them. Now, the money has something to do with it. It must be important to them when they know they're going to get a bill for calling me that time of night. So I know it's important. But the bottom line is if I didn't charge what I charge and I took clients in for $50 an hour, $100 an hour, I wouldn't have the time to do the things for the younger lawyers that I do or to do the seminars or to do the speaking or to, or to write the books or to teach at Emory, all the things I love doing. I'm i am a bit ADD. you know. I'll focus on my cases when I get them, but if all I did was nothing but go to court every day, it would wear me out. I need to feel like I'm giving back. I need to see young lawyers progress and feel like I'm having an impact. So the best thing is when I teach at a seminar or I teach at Emory Law School, trial techniques, I learn. I mean, I see people do stuff that I think I've been doing this 30 years and I never thought to do something like that. Or how impressive it was that that young lawyer put their notes aside, did their whole opening statement from their heart. And I realized as an observer or as a mock judge how valuable that is. And and so you always learn more when you teach. I, I, I get so much more than I give. Absolutely.
0: Great. So you mentioned earlier about how when you first started your practice, there was no such thing as people who just focused on divorce or or family law. Why do you think that's changed over the years?
1: It's been an evolution. When I first started there were a few lawyers that, that just did that, but even they hadn't started as divorce lawyers. They'd started as collection lawyers or business lawyers. And I think there was an image that you were feeding off the suffering of others. And you know, bottom feeders, all the nicknames, all the cliches. But really isn't that what every lawyer does? If someone's single lawyer they've got a problem, a business problem, a bankruptcy problem, a car wreck problem, a criminal problem. But I think it sort of evolved that because there's so much divorce now, you know, also it wasn't just being a divorce lawyer was a bad stigma. Being a divorcee had a bad stigma, and I think that's changed. I think, you know, being a divorcee puts you in the majority now, you know, and I don't want to say what's wrong with you if you haven't got a divorce, that's silly, but there, there's almost a mindset of are you or are you not divorced without a preconceived notion. Kids at school, it used to be that the children that were divorced used to be embarrassed to say, I'm going to mommy's house or daddy's house. Now. The conversation is more amongst kids are you with your mommy this weekend or daddy this weekend it's a very normal natural conversation just like who's your divorce lawyer and and I think that people are now starting to realize the better the divorce lawyer the better your future will be sort of that you know ounce of prevention is better than a pound of cure and so I I think we find a lot of people that come to us and say I wish I'd had you the first time or wish I'd come to a firm that just does divorce or was good at divorce instead of a lawyer that did all of it and I think word gets out that, yeah, you might pay a little bit more on the front end, but if it saves you aggravation for the next five or six years. So now people are seeking out practitioners that only do divorce work. And, you know, it's just like if you're having surgery. When you want a surgeon that's not a generalist, you want a surgeon that does just knees or just hearts or just whatever your problem is instead of someone who can do this, but they also do 15 other things. You just can't be good at everything.
0: But that seems to be the practice now with all of the most of the law. Uh, with most
1: of the law but there's still you know in small communities you have to practice in a couple of different areas but I think young lawyers or people that start their own firm will take everything that comes in the door because they need the money and and not that they're wrong to do that you know they might have to work harder to learn how to practice based on the case that came in but I think we are becoming more specialized you're right and I think uh, law school is probably going to change it used to be you graduated from law school and you didn't know anything and you took the bar which covered five or six or ten topics I mean I think there should be bar exam for family law and a bar exam for criminal law and you should be ready to go because when you get out of law school, you can go to court that day. Uh-huh. Not like medical school where you have to be a resident and, and assist somebody and go to a teacher's hospital. But I think we are specializing more and more. And, and I think it's better for the community. It's better for the world. It's better for lawyers. If you go to a lawyer that just, does, you know, lawyer. What does the term lawyer mean? I mean, I think there should be two headings. First of all, there should be trial lawyer and office lawyer. And they're both valuable. If I'm doing a merger and acquisition. Or I'm doing the sale of a business or a real estate closing, I'm not worried about litigating and cross-examining and impeaching. Those are different skills, but they're still important, but they're two completely different professions
0: in my opinion. So now, Randy, you are this place in your career, very successful. Everybody knows who you are. who always see you on television. How does that impact your, your practice being a well-known television lawyer?
1: I think it has got an up and a down. Mm-hmm. I think there are certainly people that think he was on CNN last night, so he wasn't getting ready for his case the next day. Well, I will not take an appearance on CNN, or I'll turn down an appearance on CNN if I don't have the time, if I'm not available. I've got to be available for my clients first. And I love practicing law. I don't think I could be an effective teacher in law school or commentator on CBS or CNN or wherever unless I really did this stuff and practiced this stuff. And so, But it also challenges me. I mean, I, I want to know what's going on in the world. And I think that the reason I'm on TV a lot... Comparatively to other lawyers. I don't think I'm on a lot. I'm on CNN once or twice a month, and maybe some local TV or, or print when they call for a comment. I think it keeps me in tune with what's going on. You know, clients will call me and say, So is my case anything like that when, you know, Anna Nicole Smith died and her, her child's father wasn't determined before she died? I don't want that to happen to me. So I like these public, you know, stories about divorce. It helps people understand. Like the Michael Jackson case, you should name who you want to be the guardian for your children if you pass away, so you don't have litigation like Michael Jackson had. You should have a will, and so you're not like Prince where you die and there's all this litigation. You know, there's a good examples that we can use to help teach people, and the number one thing I do for clients is probably the initial consultation when they come in and they don't know what their future is, and I can sort of summarize and explain the process and let them know there's a system. Same thing I do on TV, so, um, and you ask how it helps or hurts my practice. Think it it helps keep my name out there. It helps keep the firm name out there. I think leaders are supposed to give back, and they're supposed to be called on to explain things. And so, when they called me last week and said, "Can you explain this ruling in the Angelina Jolie case, where the judge told her to make sure dad is involved, or you might lose custody?" and the reporter asked me, "Does that really happen?" Yeah, it happens. Sometimes, and and it gives hope to people that think they'll never win because they're a man or because they don't have money. And that was a good explanation or, or a little. Example of how the underdog has a chance, and that's sort of important for people to hear. And, and I like being able to be there to explain it. So, well,
0: was Brad really the underdog?
1: Yeah, for, in a custody case, <laughs> yeah. he was. You know, because she had such an image of being this wonderful person and going out and adopting all these children. And I think the image was he did it too, but I think she was more of the the mover with the public perception. So, but yeah, he certainly has the money to pay to put up a good fight. But he's not going to win the case unless the facts are there. Right. And that's any case. Okay. The next step is. Are you willing to fight, or you want to either pay for a lawyer or find a way to learn it yourself? And I don't know. I mean, divorce is a very, unfortunately, it's a very American thing. It's a very common thing, and people need to know how it works before it's too late.
0: So let me ask you this: You're here. How did you end up, and I say here in Atlanta? Why are you in Atlanta? Why aren't you in New York or L.A. or what people yeah, would traditionally consider bigger cities?
1: Everybody's got their story. And then, I don't think I really chose it, but if if I was to choose where I want to be a successful divorce lawyer, everybody says LA, where all the superstars are, but this is a sort of big fish, small pond kind of thing. I like Atlanta. It's worked out for me, but I didn't choose it for that. I grew up in New Orleans. I went to undergraduate school in Boston at Brandeis University, and it was cold as can be, and I just (laughs) said law school below the Mason-Dixon line, and that was it. It was either Miami, New Orleans, or Atlanta for law school, and I just said Atlanta, because I can always move back home if I need to, and... Miami had too many distractions, and it worked out. I got some good experience, some good jobs, and Atlanta's a very, very easy city to move to and to integrate into, and I, I've grown to love it, even though I'm still a Saints fan. i mm-hmm. 30 years. <laughs> it's one thing I will not change, but my daughter is the token Falcons fan for the family.
0: <laughs> That's funny. I grew up in D.C., and my parents weren't together. My dad lived in Virginia, and so when I would go to my dad's house for the weekend, they were all Cowboys fans, and I was the only Skins. Of course fan in the house. You know,
1: Look, we represent a lot of NFL players, and it's interesting because it's all about where they grew up. I mean, I, I represented players that play for certain teams, and they secretly are rooting for their home team, not, not against their own team. <laughs> right. You know, if their team's out of... good yeah, Peyton Manning, he lost the Super Bowl to the New Orleans Saints. There is no question in my mind that some part of him was extremely happy because not only did he grow up in New Orleans, his dad was the star quarterback for the Saints. He had to be a Saints fan. Yeah. He tried to win the game. But I'm sure he was happy for New Orleans.
0: I think one thing maybe people don't know about you is how much of a sports fan you
1: are. Well, you know, my wife thinks I'm a big sports fan. I'm not that big of a sports fan. I don't really follow baseball since I didn't grow up with baseball. The New Orleans Jazz were in New Orleans when I was growing up. I go to the Hawks games because they're across the street and I have good seats and I represent a lot of basketball players. But I've, I've been lucky enough to lecture for the NBPA, the Players Association for Basketball and for the NFLPA for years. So I've gotten to know a lot of their agents and and players. Um, so that's it's fun to go down there when you know somebody actually playing or watch the games when they're playing. But I'm not a diehard, have to be at every single football game there, but I enjoy it. I love the Saints. I'm a diehard Hawks fan. I hope one day they bring a championship to Atlanta. Atlanta needs it badly. I'm an Atlanta United fan. Um, I like the Red Sox because mm-hmm. my grandparents were from Boston and, and love the Red Sox. But I think sports is also... A good way to bond with people when you go to a sporting event with somebody or when you watch a sporting event with your kid you can't squelch those emotions you know your, your children see who you are you know when you when your son sees you you know yell at the screen when the cowboys you know beat the redskins mm-hmm. he's going to see that mommy's got some passion and yeah. you just can't hide it so there's something authentic about sports that i like and i like it's a good social event for me i'm not a big golfer i'm not a big country club guy but i'll go to a sporting event with somebody every day and just you know See how they get excited and, and disappointed. So it's human nature.
0: Well, don't you also play a little basketball?
1: I played. I've been playing a long time. I played soccer. I had soccer scholarships. Oh, really? A state record. I had outscored all of our opponents. I scored nineteen goals, and our opponents scored sixteen goals. Of course, it was in New Orleans back in the seventies, and it wasn't that big of a sport. But I appreciated the, the, the work ethic that went into it. Yeah, and I love bonding with people on the basketball court. I think. You see who people are. You see people that yell at the referees are the same people that, that would yell at the judge, you know, and the people that play and, and, and speak their mind by the, their work ethic instead of by yelling. Yeah, I mean, I I, I like sports.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, it's interesting when you just said it. I'm sure someone has thought about it, about it before, but it's that same concept of seeing who somebody is when they're playing sports, but, you know, being an adversary on the court, yeah,
1: but see, then... You see the guy that's still yelling at the referee about a foul, and you see the other guy who's getting up and running down the court to make the next play. Mm-hmm. You know, you see LeBron James who gets fouled every single play and very rarely complains. People will say he complains. But he gets hit every time, and he doesn't get calls because people expect him to overcome. Shaquille O'Neal, same way. And I just admire how they just get up, make the next play, and one more bit of adversity. I mean, that, that first game of the finals this year, I don't know how LeBron James got himself back out on the court, how devastating it was. And he got out there and he gave it a a strong effort, you know, every other game too.
0: Well, we heard heard about you enjoying sports, but you also have some new business endeavors. We know you're Ah. an attorney, you wanted to practice law, but you have some other business developments
1: going on. So I have a family member who's in Silicon Valley and very involved in startups and apps and, and the legal space, and I got to know a lot of people out there. And I, I sprung an idea on them that they loved, and I, call it, I called it the Happy Birthday app originally. It's now called StarSona. But if, the idea was that, you know, I get calls a lot and say, Randy, can you have one of your NBA players wish my kid a happy birthday and do a quick video? And sports agents get that all the time. And, and I said, you know, there should be an app for that. Athletes should be able to monetize that. They, I see my clients. I walk around them, walk to court, and people stop them, and they're so nice. They always stop, spend an extra 15 minutes just saying hi to somebody or taking a selfie. Why shouldn't why couldn't there be a place online where the average fan could go online and say, I want to find my favorite basketball player, or someone that played for the University of Alabama, or someone that, that sings in a hip hop band, wish my kid happy birthday, or, or Congratulate my son on winning the championship football game, because that would be worth fifty bucks to me to get a video from Champ Bailey or Dominic Wilkins or whoever it is. And so they love the idea and we worked for about a year and a half on it and just launched it. It's the Starstone app. You can go online, find your favorite athlete. Favorite star, and and if you don't find your favorite star, because you wanted Brett Favre from the Packers, maybe there's somebody else from the Green Bay Packers instead that you can find. But you know, we're just growing, and it was fun to give back. But it's also fun to see how that whole business works. But thank goodness for the team out in Silicon Valley—they're doing the mechanics and the payments and everything. My job is just to let people know about it. I had the idea, and I uh, help guide them. But it's been fun because you know, all of our new, young, rich clients come in—you know, what 19 and 20 and 30-year-olds want to be. They want to be CEO. They want to have their own app. Nobody wants to be a lawyer or a doctor. So mm-hmm. they all want to develop their own business. They all want to do a startup. And so now I've seen how startups work, and, and it's a learning experience And uh, If anyone has any feedback on Star Sona or they have a star they want to put on it, by all means, call me, write me, email me, or email you, Kimberly, and I'll be happy to talk to them about it. So, okay. so it keeps me young.
0: Now, Star Sona. I That's, never knew that.
1: Like it, Persona. Okay. S T A R S O N A. It's on the App Store, it's on Google Play, and StarSona.com if you want to order something on the web.
0: Okay. I didn't know you had started off as a happy birthday, but that makes sense now. Yeah, sort the,
1: of my, the basic idea. Now you can do anything. You can say a 16-year-old can propose to you know his girlfriend to bring her to the prom, and he can have a, a football player you know do a video to her saying, hey, Joe wants to invite you to the prom, but he's a little bit shy. But I'm not, so go with Joe. He's a good guy. How cool would that kid be? Yeah, that is pretty cool. You know, or, Listen, I'd w- I like to order the salmon cooked medium with a side of Brussels sprouts. And I get to the restaurant with you, Kimberly, and I, I show the way to that. And instead of me ordering for you, your favorite hip-hop star is ordering <laughs> dinner for you. You know, just you can have fun with it.
0: You can. That is funny. Well, quickly, you know, I wanted to ask you about what you can share, because I know cases are secret. But what, are, off of the top of your head, what is the most interesting case that you've had?
1: I mean, there's so many. The ones that are interesting are the ones that are legally challenging that would really make new law or, or go to the you know higher-level courts, the appellate courts, to uh, address. But those would be too time-consuming to go over. What I really am lucky and, and the thing I feel most fortunate about is to I get to peer inside of people's lives that I would never meet or get to know but from my profession. I mean, the Real Housewives of Atlanta, for sure, people know that I've represented a bunch of them and a bunch of their husbands. And to see how they've made it from... You know, some of them have no college degrees, but they have personality that overwhelms everything else and has made them into success and how they deal with the newfound success. The young athletes who at age 18 are given a $5 million contract and they're going to make $5 million a year for a few years and then they may never make it again and they've got to figure out disability insurance and life insurance and retirement before they've even turned 21. It's just amazing how some of these folks grow up so fast and I'm getting to see them process life um, and I'm seeing people at their worst and they're grappling with things uh, that they're going to get through and then the best part of it for me is seeing them a few years later when I've been there with somebody who is super successful or super, you know, whatever. I've been there when they were at their rock bottom and now I see them bounce back. It's amazing. It gives me hope for for humanity. It sounds cliche, but I've seen people go through some horrible stuff and, and still make it. I've seen some people go through horrible stuff and not make it back and that's been terrible. We've had, you know, people that have passed away or people that have not... Maybe they did it to themselves You know the records weren't clear, but the people that can get through it and, 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 and can be stronger for it, uh, I admire so many of my clients for having gone through it and, and still coming out on top because as a friend of mine once told me, a psychologist friend, divorce isn't really about money, it's about happiness or as a client of mine once said, or just about being less miserable
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: so it's, uh, because really it's about trying to figure out what you can do to make yourself better and, and be happier, more content. And it's a hard decision to say, my marriage didn't work. It's admitting your failure. You promised yourself and your family and God that you would make this marriage work till death do you part. And you have to go back on that pledge. And people wrestle with that and torment. And that torments them. But when they make it through, it's uh, it's, it's fascinating. And uh, I'm lucky enough to be able to be a part of it and and hopefully help.
0: Well, I'm going to ask you two closing questions. And these are probably things that people have to pay for. But what do you say to somebody who's just... About to get married or thinking about getting married.
1: First of all, I just want everyone to know you've done this with no notes. You are a great interviewer. (laughs) So, ask me that again.
0: What do you advice you give to someone who is about to get married or thinking about getting married? Go for
1: it. That's what life's about. You know, if you've been married a few times and if you're not going to have any more kids, and you, then you may not need to get married. You know, marriage is a non-logical thing. Mm -hmm. It's a romantic thing. If you want to talk logically, strategically. To me about whether you should get married or not i would say why get married if you are going to make money and you're worried about a fight about money later but if if you're doing it because you want to spend the rest of your life with this person and you want that bond and you want that seal of approval or god or the church or whatever it is no reason not to do it now if you want to talk strategically we can have a consultation and i'll tell you all about (laughs) prenuptial agreements and separate property but that's a longer discussion the bottom line is i don't care if you're married 15 times if you find somebody that you think it's going to work don't don't let your past experience get you down there's somebody for everybody
0: and then um, somebody hits that unfortunate wall and they see no way to happiness except for divorce then what do you
1: talk to somebody have an initial consultation with a lawyer or two or three lawyers go talk coming in to see me or a divorce lawyer doesn't it's not betrayal of your spouse it doesn't mean you're getting divorced it means you're going to see what it would be like if you got divorced and you'll start to see that either there's hope that you can have a decent life afterwards or you're going to realize that you will be financially devastated and you'd rather stay miserable but financially secure than be happy and financially insecure without at least know what your options are and know what the process looks like and know what it would take to go through it so that even if you stay in it you at least know that you ask the questions yeah be my opinion that's my my suggestion okay.
0: so now this is a final final question what's next for randy kessler
1: i'm so lucky and you know, i've been at a place where if i if someone asked me at 20 years old where do you want to be when you're 70 or 80 i, I I'm I'm so happy to be there. You know, I wish I had less financial obligation. I've got you know the, the weight of the firm, and there you know when you run a big firm, you got you know you just move the decimal point a couple different places. And if we miss payroll one month, that's you know a few hundred thousand dollars. It's not just a few thousand dollars. So I wish I didn't have that obligation. But what's next for me? I I pray to stay healthy, and that my family stays healthy, and that I can practice law until I die. I mean, I love it representing folks. I love being in the courtroom. I love. People ask me for advice that I think and feel is valuable. And I know that if I do my job right, by the end of my career, I can look back and say that I, I helped people and I helped the world in a very small way by giving them good, honest advice about how they can make themselves better and and not tear their families apart. You know, we can make a lot more money by pushing people to fight. People may believe this, may not believe it. I don't really care. I know in my heart that I'm telling people what I think is good for them, and I'm pushing settlement in every nook and cranny that I can and uh, there's some cases you have to try, and some cases you're you know we're going to be trials. And I'm happy to do that, but you know at least explore that and explore the option of working it out because no one's going to be 100% happy with any result. Well, there are a few, <laughs> but generally speaking, trials, litigation cost money, cause pain, and you never get everything you want.
0: Well, thank you so much, Randy. I appreciate your time today.
1: Sure. Thank you very much.
0: so glad we were able to have Randy on the show today. Randy's story is so inspiring to me. I remember he told me that he started his practice out in a $500 a month office at the Hurt building. And at the time my own office was in the Hurt building, so that gave me a bit of inspiration. And now, we also didn't talk about the fact that Randy has a deluxe office in the sky. His office suite used to be Ted Turner suite, and so he has a great view of all of downtown. And more than bragging, it's about how your drive and your passion can take you to literally the highest heights. And so I want to thank Randy again for being on the show. Thank you all for listening. Please check out our website at southernlawyer.org and stay tuned for more episodes of Southern Lawyer, where we bring you real stories from real lawyers. This is Kimberly Peyton Jones. Thanks again for listening.